Ahoy! It's Trevor. Uh, this is Splashdown. This is a short 15-minute show telling you what's visible in the sky in Montreal. As well, I talk to artists, I talk to astronomers, I talk to scientists about all the fun space stuff going around our city. This week, this week, my guest is Lisa Dang, uh, and she uses Einstein's theory of general relativity to find exoplanets. And exoplanets are planets that are way out there beyond our solar system that are orbiting other stars. But first, back here on Earth, what can we see in the sky this week, March 22nd to March 28th? First, um, the International Space Station. Um, the space station is this giant orbiting laboratory, and there's currently seven people on board. That place where Chris Hadfield sang some David Bowie songs, that was on the space station. Um, and the station, it goes around the Earth every 90 minutes, and you can see it with the naked eye. You don't need a telescope to see this if you got eyeballs. You can see this. Um, Each night this week, uh, you'll be able to see it. Uh, And if you never have, you should really give this a go. It's really cool. I'm surprised how many people have never seen it before. And I just love showing it the the first time. Basically, it looks like a bright dot moving across the night sky. It takes about five minutes for it to to, to cross the the, the sky. It is moving really fast. Uh, It's moving at about seven kilometers per second. Uh, But here on Earth, uh, it looks like it's slow-moving star, and it's pretty pretty easy to spot. It can get quite bright. Um, I'm going to recommend you download a free uh, iPhone and Android app. It's called ISS Detector, International Space Station Detector, ISS Detector. And what it'll do is it'll send you an alert uh, just a few minutes before it flies overhead, uh, and it gives you the direction to look at and even has a sort of helpful... Uh, radar feature, which uses your camera, and it points out and shows you exactly where in the sky in real time where you should look as it's uh, flying over. I'm going to put each of the flyby times in the show description. Um, they're different each night, and it would be a little bit mm, tedious <laughs> mentioning each of these specific times uh, seven days in a row. Uh, but in general, uh, these uh, flybys will happen between 7.50 p.m. and 8.50 p.m. Uh, after the sun has set. Next, the moon. Uh, This week, the moon is between half-lit and full for most of the week. Um, So it'll first be visible in the afternoon and be up in the sky through most of the night. Uh, I really try to challenge people to try and find the moon during the daytime. It always feels like you're part of a special club, uh, if you can notice it, during the day. Um, So look at east in the afternoons and try to spot it. Um, The moon will get more and more lit up each night. Uh, And then Saturday, it's nearly full. It's basically full. And I encourage people to see the moon when it's low on the horizon, just shortly after it has uh, first risen. So I'm going to put a link in the description with all the details. But in short, on Saturday, the moon will rise in the east at 5.58 p.m. Um, The sun will still be up at that time, but wait a few minutes, maybe a 15, 20 minutes, and you should start to see um, the moon rising in the east. Uh, But Sunday, Sunday, if the weather works out and you happen to be at Tam Tams across from Jeunemont's Park, the moon is officially full on that day. So on that day, the sun will set at 7.17 p.m. And at that exact moment, the very same time, 7.17 p.m. in the eastern sky, the moon will be rising. Um, It'll take a few minutes for it to clear some of the buildings, but left of downtown, uh, if it's clear, what you should see is a fantastic pastel-colored sky with a full moon sitting on on top of it. Um, I can't imagine the hopefully uh, socially distant drum circle freakout uh, that will happen the moment it becomes visible. So again, Sunday, Tam Tams, 
the moon rises in the east at 7.17 p.m. Keep looking, and at about 7.30 p.m., it should be a really fantastic view. I'll have links in the show description with all the details and places to go and see it. Okay, let's get to our guest, Lisa Dang. Um, She uses a unique method of finding exoplanets here in Montreal. Let's have a listen. So my name is Lisa Dang. I'm a PhD student at McGill University in the Department of Physics, but I sort of do kind of like an interdisciplinary science. I study the science of exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets that don't orbit our sun, but instead orbit other stars out there. So they're really, really far away. And this field is relatively new. How long have we known that there's other planets outside of our solar system. It's a pretty fresh, fresh field. Yeah. So I'm glad to say that like by the time that I was born, there was no exoplanet in existence or that known yet. And then since then, the 90s, we've discovered about 4,000 exoplanets now. Um, And we've become better and better every year at finding exoplanets. There's a bit of debate about when we first confirmed discovery of exoplanets. But the way that my brain works is since Toy Story came out, in 1995. That's when we first started finding them, and since then we've found thousands and thousands of them. Now, in order to see them, you can't just point your telescope at a star and see them directly. They'd be too small, too faint, too far away. So we've had to come up with some interesting methods in order to spot them. The the most popular method of finding an exoplanet is the transit method. It's basically if you have a star, you can think of a star as just like a source of light. And if you were to have something passing in front of that source of light, then you're sort of like blocking some part of this light. And you see that light, virtually the light seems a little bit dimmer. And this is what we measure. So when we find a star that suddenly like dims down and then comes back to its normal brightness, uh, you're like, oh, something is passing in front. But if it does that periodically, then now you know that whatever is blocking the star is not just like a random thing passing in front, but something that is orbiting around the star. There are several other methods for finding exoplanets that I can't go into full detail about here. But the data from these methods are used in Montreal at a place called IREX. IREX is uh, an acronym for the Institute for Research on Exoplanet. And that's uh, an institute that's based in Montreal at University of Montreal, but uh, groups over uh researchers of other universities in in Quebec as well. And so IREX is this institute for research uh, on exoplanets, and we try to bring together people of different sides of exoplanets. So both people who are discovering the exoplanets, people who are trying to get a little bit more intimate with individual exoplanets and trying to understand what life would be on these planets, um, as well as people who think about how they evolve over time. So how do you form? How do you build an exoplanet? So there's several different people, different groups at IREX using different methods to discover exoplanets. Can you describe your method? So um, one of the things that I do as part of my research on exoplanet is uh, trying to find exoplanets from this method that we call microlensing or gravitational microlensing. It uses uh, more abstract and physical concepts in physics to find these exoplanets. So it's not as intuitive as you're blocking some part of the of the light. So Einstein's general relativity, one of the consequences of this, and if people are not super familiar with what it means, um, it basically means that every object in the universe has some mass. And if you do have some mass, then you're sort of like bending space-time or the fabric of space-time. And by bending this fabric of of space-time, you're sort of like distorting how things are moving in the universe, uh, both mass, but also light. This can get quite complex, obviously, but here's a basic example. We would be pointing a telescope at a star. 
and while we're looking at that star, a planet would almost get between our telescope and that star we're pointing at. Now, the gravity of that planet would bend that star's light, and that bending would temporarily make that star look brighter. So in effect, we're not looking directly for the exoplanet, but rather the planet's gravitational effect it has on its star. Whenever I hear somebody mention Einstein or general relativity, that can feel very conceptual. That can yeah. feel very like, not of Earth, not of like we would interact with that here. So like, like yeah. to me, I don't think many people would know that like, oh no, there's people here in Montreal doing work using Einstein's general theory of relativity to discover planets out there. For now, we're using mostly telescopes that are on the ground. Um, so they're big telescopes that are either in Hawaii or in like up high in the mountains uh, that we can use. The thing is, it's not a super efficient way of doing things because half of the day there's the sun and you can't look at the sky. And so what if these like microlensing events happen during broad daylight, you would miss them half of the time. Um, and also another thing is that the telescope that we have on the ground have a pretty small field of view uh, compared to those that you could that you could have if you were to send a spacecraft in space and basically point wherever you want it in the sky. And so upcoming is the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. And this is uh, a telescope that is going to do a third of its time, um, I think, it's going to be dedicated to exoplanet microlensing. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a telescope in space. Um, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna stay there for at least five years. Um, it's gonna stay. It's gonna stare at the sky and look for exoplanets, kind of um, everywhere between here and towards the galactic bulge of our of our Milky Way. Lisa and I talked at length about exoplanets and all the different kinds of exoplanets that that, that could possibly be out there. I'll have to have her back on soon. Uh, but I want to talk about the equinox. Last Saturday, March 20th was the equinox, and I did a live stream on that Saturday showing the Eratosthenes experiment. So Eratosthenes was a guy who lived in Greece uh, over 2,000 years ago, about uh, 200 BC. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to find out how big the Earth was. So on the equinox, he placed a stick upright on the ground at solar noon, and he measured how long the shadow it cast was. And so the story goes that he hired another person uh, to walk directly south of him and measure how far they walked. The story says it's 800 kilometers, which sounds a bit fantastic to me, but whatever. Uh, so that person walked directly south of Eratosthenes. And that person did the same experiment. Uh, on the equinox, they put a stick in the ground and measured how long the shadow it cast, how long the shadow was. So using those three pieces of information, the distance between those two sticks and the two shadow lengths that those sticks made, Eratosthenes was able to measure the size of the Earth. And his result um, was shockingly close. We could verify it, you know, centuries, many, many years later, and it was actually really, really close. Now, I'd heard this story before, um, and this is a story that, you know, it sounds like it would exist in the realm of the conceptual, like you read it in, about it in a book, or maybe like Carl Sagan would talk about it, and it feels like something you'd never be able to do yourself. But Saturday, I did do 
the experiment during the live stream. So I did this experiment um, for the first time back last autumn on the autumn equinox. And I'm going to mention one part that really gave me chills when I did it. So a, a big part of the experiment is measuring an angle that gets created when you measure your stick and the shadow it creates. Um, so I had a one meter long stick and I did as Eratosthenes did. I placed it upright and at solar noon, when the sun is directly south, I measured the length of the shadow and my one meter long stick cast a shadow that was also one meter. It was the same as the stick. And so the angle that got created was 45 degrees. And this, this didn't feel right to me. And I thought maybe I was doing the experiment wrong. Like, how is it that my stick is one meter and the shadow is also one meter? Like, why would they be the same length? So I was, I was, I was, I was convinced I was doing the experiment wrong. So what I did is I, I called up my mom uh, on that same day and I, I asked her at her solar noon and she's in Alberta up near Edmonton. I asked her, um, can you place a stick and measure the length of it and I'll calculate the shadow. And uh, Edmonton is more north than, than Montreal. And so she gave me her, her, her numbers and the angle that she got was 53 degrees. So I knew that I was, I was probably doing the experiment right. And so I looked at those numbers. I looked at mine, 45 degrees here in Montreal, and then 53 degrees up near Edmonton. And I was thinking to myself, like, why do those numbers seem so familiar? What's going on? And that's when it clicked. Uh, 45 degrees is our latitude here in Montreal. That's the amount of degrees north of the equator that we are. And 53 degrees is the latitude of Edmonton. That's the amount of degrees north of the equator that they are uh, up over there. And this literally gave me chills when my mom told me her measurements and I found out the angle, when I calculated that angle. And on the day of the equinox, at solar noon, when the sun is directly south, we're able to measure our latitude, the amount of degrees north of the equator that we are. And this simple experiment, the Eratosthenes experiment, it, for me in that moment, it moved out of the textbook and out of the realm of the conceptual and made it real. And my gut would normally tell me that you would need way more complex, you know, way more complex math. You'd be needing way more complex tools to calculate this, but you don't, okay? You need simple math and simple tools, uh, and you can do this. And it feels like you and your stick and your math are connected to something that is so huge. And to me, it feels like you're touching the same delight that maybe the ancients felt when they did their calculation. But the difference is, for me, ordinary modern person, I have the tools and the pool of human knowledge to verify that it's right. So uh, uh, next uh, equinox, next autumn equinox, 2021, I hope to do this experiment again, get more people on board to do it, because I think it's just so cool uh, to be able to do this and feel that connection um, with the globe around us. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you next week.